the Lord uh, put something on my heart to uh, to minister uh, over the next uh, several weeks, a series to begin that um, um, I haven't taught on in some time. I want to teach on different kinds of prayer. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 is the, uh, is the, the text scripture, the golden text that we'll... Um, used for uh, for this series throughout the uh, the entirety of this series but um, but I want to take it in context and so let's start in verse 10 Ephesians chapter 6 beginning in verse 10 Paul is writing by the Holy Ghost I like to say the Holy Ghost said through the Apostle Paul finally my brethren be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might a lot of people are trying to be strong in themselves and never the Bible never says anything about being strong in yourself it says be strong in him in other words hang on don't try to do it yourself, but realize who he is, what he's done for you, and hang on and not, uh, and not let go, not be moved. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Please notice that your job is just to stand. You're not out to whip anybody. You're just to stand against the work of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness on high or heavenly places. Wherefore, for this reason, take unto you the whole armor of God. That's your choice. That's your decision. It's something that you and only you can do for you. Take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Notice if you don't take the armor of God, you're not going to make it when evil attacks you. Another translation, William's translation, I believe it is, says when evil attacks. If you don't have the armor of God on, you're going to fall prey to the enemy, which so many Christians do. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Please notice the armor of God is your ability. The armor of God is your ability. Holding fast to who Jesus is and what he's done for you and what the word says belongs to you because of his sacrifice. That is your ability. Has nothing to do with you. Everybody has an equal shot in this. Everybody has an equal opportunity. Not everybody's in the same place because some have developed it and others have not. But everybody starts with the same opportunity. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day or when evil attacks you. And having done all to stand, so it's a preparation thing. You've got to prepare yourself to stand. Having done all to stand, stand therefore. Having your loins girt about with truth. And having on the breastplate of righteousness. So you need to know something about truth and righteousness if you're going to be able to stand against the devil's work. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You need to know something about the peace of God if you're going to make it. Above all or over all, that doesn't mean above all meaning the most important, it just means to cover everything else. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. So you're going to have to know something about faith if you're going to withstand the devil's attack. And take the helmet of salvation... And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You need to know something about the salvation you have in Jesus. And you need to know something about the Word of God and how to use, or effectively, use the Word of God to be able to overcome the devil's attack. And all those are things that are available to you, available to every person. Now, we usually stop with that. If we're talking about the armor of God and talking about these different uh, elements and faith and peace and... and uh, righteousness and truth and so forth we'll take those oftentimes people will take and i have i've done it myself take each of those as an individual subject and talk about what you need to know about these things and so forth but notice the context the context is now that you've got the armor of god on now that you've ta- given been given instruction on how to be strong in the lord found out who your enemy is 
found out what you need to know so that you can stand effectively. Notice here's the reason why Paul is instructed by the Holy Ghost to tell us to stand. Praying. In other words, this is prayer armor. This is the foundation for your prayer life. Now stop right there and think about where the church is missing it. Realize how little the church knows about truth, righteousness. Truth meaning the word of God rather than church doctrine. Righteousness, who we are in Christ, not who we feel like we are. The gospel of peace, what it really means. Having been united with God through Jesus and Jesus having made peace for us. And made peace with God. Faith. Well that's a misunderstood subject. Get in trouble if you get in the wrong crowd. And talk about faith. Meaning believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Look at where the church has fallen short. In other words it's saying. You're not going to be able to pray effectively. If you don't know what you need to know about these subjects. That's what taking the armor of God is. It's learning what you need to learn. Wouldn't it be nice if this was a physical action we could take. I've seen some people trying to trying to, to, to go through the motions so that they realize what they're doing. Uh, that seems like a waste of time to me. You can go through the physical motions of putting something on, but if you don't know what you need to know about it, you're, you're unclothed anyway. No matter what physical actions you take. But wouldn't it be nice if you could just put on these things and be set? Well, the way you put them on is through the knowledge of what God has done for you in these areas. So here's the reason. That you're supposed to put on these ar- this armor of God. In other words, here's the reason that you're supposed to live with the knowledge of these different subjects and what Jesus has done for you in this respect. So that your prayer life works. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance for all saints. Now Paul throws something in there for himself and he says, and pray for me too. That utterance would be given unto me. But notice back to verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication. Other translations say praying with all kinds of prayer. Or praying with all manner of prayer. Now not many translations will do that. There are a few. The the Jewish Bible is is one good example. Praying with all kinds. I'm not sure if it uses manner or kinds. But it conveys the thought. But you could understand that if uh, if there was no other translation whatsoever... That talked about different kinds or manner of prayer. Different kinds or different ways to pray. You could see that the wording itself. The, the, the Greek that's translated in, in, into English itself. Conveys that. Because he says praying with all prayer. If there's just one prayer. And, and so many people say. Well prayer is prayer isn't it? Yeah. And sports are sports. But you play different sports by different rules. The same thing's true with prayer. I think the church world has had the idea that prayer is just asking God for whatever you want and then concluding by saying, Lord, if that's if it's your will and then whatever happens is the will of God revealed and whatever doesn't happen, God didn't want to happen. And that's the extent of so many so many Christians prayer life. Yet that doesn't seem to be the kind of prayer life that Paul is talking about. He's talking about a prayer life that utilizes different kinds of prayer. And if it was just, if there was just one kind of prayer, then Paul would have not, would not have said by the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost would have been smart enough to know there's only one kind of prayer, and he wouldn't have said praying with all prayer. He would have just said praying. Because if there's only one kind of prayer, then there's only one kind of praying to do. Praying. In the Spirit. For all saints. But he didn't. 
He said, praying with all prayer. In other words, all different kinds and manner of prayer. The New Testament gives us seven or eight different kinds of prayer, depending on how you want to count them. As an example for what a a complete, well-rounded prayer life should be. How many Christians do you know of that know that there are seven or eight different kinds of praying? Very few. Now, why is that? Because we haven't taken the word of God and taken it apart to see what things applied in, 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 in each individual situation. We don't take the time to look at it and recognize that God has instilled in us or provided for us, I should say, an example of different kinds of praying that work effectively. Now, notice in verse 18, before we turn away from this, and we'll turn to James chapter 5 in just a moment. But notice before we leave this verse, notice it says praying in the spirit. In other words, all these kinds of prayer can be prayed in or motivated by the Holy Ghost. Praying with all prayer and supplication. We'll talk about the difference in prayer and supplication. But notice all the prayer, all the different kinds of prayer and the supplication can be motivated by the spirit. Now, charismatics are big to, to, to catch on to certain catchphrases and, and uh, just kind of get one-tracked and narrow-minded about certain things. And so some people see that verse uh, saying, in the Spirit, and they compare that to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where Paul says, howbeit if you pray in other tongues, you're praying in the Spirit. So they assume that this means that he's talking about praying in other tongues. But that's just one kind of prayer. He didn't say praying with the one kind or the most important kind because charismatics usually think praying in tongues is the most important way. He didn't say praying with the one kind or the most important kind in the spirit. He said that all these different kinds of prayer can be prayed in the spirit. Well, there are certain kinds of prayer that you can't pray in other tongues. So he can't be talking about in other tongues when he uses that phrase. And what he's talking about is the motivation or the influence of the Holy Ghost in your prayer life. In other words, he's saying that in every kind of all the different seven or eight different kinds of prayer, again, it's just based on how you want to count them. It's, um, uh, it's eight if you separate them out in the, the most technical way that you can. It's seven if you group them together like I think they ought to be grouped. But however you count them, the important thing is to know that there are different kinds. And every one of those seven or eight different kinds of prayer can be motivated or influenced by the Holy Ghost. Now, wouldn't you expect the influence of the Holy Ghost to make your prayer life successful? Wouldn't you assume that if your prayer life, no matter what kind of prayer you're using for what situation you're in, wouldn't you imagine that the Holy Ghost, if he's motivating you or influencing you in that kind of prayer, would bring you to success? Well, sure it would be. Sure he's going to lead you into success. God wants you to have a successful prayer life. I'm going to go so far as to say this. God wants you to never pray another prayer that doesn't get an answer. That's the will of God in prayer. That's what Paul's trying to get across to us. He's trying to tell us, here's how to do that. Why in the world would God want you to pray worthless prayers? Why would God want you to pray ineffective prayers? Why would God want you to pray prayers that don't get answers? Don't you have better things to do with your time? Now, that does away with the idea in the church world that God sometimes says yes, God sometimes says no, and God sometimes says wait. If you're being motivated by the Holy Ghost to pray, God's not saying no. How would God tell the Holy Ghost who's motivating you to pray no? God's not schizophrenic. God and the Holy Ghost are part of the Godhead. 
God the Father is not going to say no to the Holy Ghost, is he? If he says no to the Holy Ghost, then that means the Holy Ghost, who is a part of the Godhead, prayed contrary to the will of God. How's that possible? It's not. Under what circumstances would God the Father tell the Holy Ghost to wait? The Holy Ghost is the agent of God the Father here on the earth. The Bible talks about the Holy Ghost knowing the mind and the will and the purpose of God. Which is one of the great benefits of praying in other tongues. Because we don't know the mind and the purpose of God in every situation like we ought to. Doesn't mean we don't know some of it. Usually we do. But there are some situations that we don't know how to pray as we ought. Meaning we don't have the entirety of God's mind, purpose, and plan. But the Holy Ghost does. So how could God the Father ever say no to the Holy Ghost or ever say wait to the Holy Ghost? It's impossible. We've developed a lot of church doctrine based on experience because we, were oper- we, the church, was operating in ignorance rather than operating according to what the Word says. Turn with me over to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Notice something that James is inspired by the Holy Ghost to say. Now, again, I'm going to read this in context. It's easy to take it out, but I want you to see the context of this. We'll start in verse 13, verse 16. The last part of verse 16 is what we want to get to. It says, is any among you afflicted? The word afflicted means going through a test, a trial, or a problem. Is any among you afflicted? What do you do if you're afflicted? Pray. Let him pray. Now, again, if you pray, motivated by the Holy Ghost, that would be victory in the middle of your trouble, wouldn't it? Or it would bring victory in the middle of your trouble, wouldn't it? Is there any way that it couldn't bring victory in the middle of your trouble? Not if it's motivated or influenced by the Holy Ghost. So if we apply the, just the general principles that we've seen already in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Concerning the armor of God. And the action that, that it recommends to us in verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 6. Then whatever trouble you're in you can expect to get out of victoriously. Now I didn't say instantly. I said victoriously. Right? So we know he's talking about prayer. We know whatever else comes, he's talking about the subject of prayer, at least including the subject of prayer. He says, is any merry? Let him sing psalms. What do you do when you're happy? Sing psalms. In other words, rejoice and thank God. Notice just like you're supposed to do your own praying, you're supposed to do your own singing. Most people I've found are are willing to do their own singing when things are going good. But some of those same people want somebody else to do their praying for them when they're in the middle of trouble. That's not what the Bible says. I don't like other people trying to do my praying for me. They can't possibly be as interested in me as me. They can't possibly be hurting in my hard place like I do. I don't care if they've been through it before. I don't care if they've been through some of the same family trouble or financial trouble or whatever other kind of trouble that I've been in. Or that I might be going through. They can't be experiencing the same thing that I am in the same measure. So that they would have my interests as much a priority as I have. Well, Pastor Mike, you sound like you're selfish. When it comes to receiving the things of God, I am. But not selfish from the standpoint that I want it and don't want nobody else to have them. I have a great self-interest. Because God had a great self-interest in me. Are you out there? 
See, the devil's trying to make you think you're being selfish when all you're doing is laying claim to what Jesus has already purchased. That's not selfish. It'd be selfish if you were taking it at the expense of somebody else. But I don't only want it for myself. I want it for everybody. Why? Because Jesus bought it. Jesus paid the price for it. So is any among you afflicted, going through a hard place, a test or trial or trouble? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Notice it does not say, go and hope that there's a prayer line. It says it's, the, it's just as much the responsibility of the individual to call for hands to be laid on them as it is for the, the happy guy to sing and for the guy in trouble to pray. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them, the elders of the church, pray over him. He's still talking about prayer, isn't he? Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. In the name of the Lord. The same word pray in verse 14 is the word pray in verse 13. Same exact word. And the prayer of faith shall save, literally heal the sick. He didn't say maybe. He's not inspired by the Holy Ghost to say here's your best chance. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Now please notice there is a specific kind of prayer identified. And the prayer of faith. The word used for pray in verses 13 and 14 is a general word that's just talking about communication with God. But the word that's used or the phrase that's used in verse 15 and the prayer of faith. So there has to be a prayer of faith or something called the prayer of faith. That's one of the seven or eight different kinds of prayer. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. So what do we know about one of these types of prayer right off the bat? One of these kinds of prayer receives from God every time. Now, why would God in, uh, uh, create and tell us about one kind of prayer that works every time and create other kinds of prayer that don't work every time? Would that seem consistent with the character and the nature of God? Doesn't seem like it to me. Seems like if God's a God that wants one kind of prayer answered, he would be the kind of God that wants all kinds of prayer answered. Well, if God wants to answer all of our prayers, why are not all of our prayers answered? Why don't we get the answers that we pray? Let's keep reading. Verse, six, uh, verse 15, in the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him, the sick man up. And if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Verse 16, confess your faults one to another. The word faults is the word sins. In other words, if I've done something against you, it's not enough for me just to, to say, well, Father, forgive me. I need to ask you to forgive me. In other words, he's talking about the principle of walking in love in connection with the prayer of faith. Notice they're teamed up together. It's the same thing Jesus is talking about in, in Mark chapter 11, verses 23 and 24. He's talking about verse 23. He's talking about faith by saying, believing in your heart and saying with your mouth. Verse 24, he's talking about the prayer of faith to believe that you receive when you pray. Verse 25, he says, if you have ought against anybody, forgive. Why is that? Because the thing that makes the prayer of faith effective, at least one thing that makes the prayer of faith effective is the love walk. So he's saying in connection with the prayer of faith to bring results every time. He says, now, look, if you've got unforgiveness in your life or if you've got something that you haven't cleared up with your brother or your sister, 
Go confess that to them. Go talk to them. Ask for their forgiveness. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about confession like the, like the Catholics do it. He's not talking about going to somebody and telling them everything you've ever done wrong in your life. Folks, I don't want to know. You tell me all the wrong stuff you've done or are doing or whatever, it just gives me stuff to deal with. I don't want to know. And nobody else should want to know either. I don't want you to know mine. I don't want to know yours. Confess your faults or your sins one to another and pray. Here's the general word pray again and pray one for another that you may be healed. Now you obviously can see that he's talking about prayer of the prayer of faith as being a part of general communication with God. Because he's just said the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. Now he's saying here's how to work it. Between two people, two Christians, two people that might have something against one another or unforgiveness or whatever the case is, clear it up yourself. This doesn't take the elders of the church. Clear it up between yourselves and then pray for each other that you may be healed. The implication is the unforgiveness or the unconfessed sin between two people will keep the sickness in force. But you clear it up and then pray. One for another, you shall be healed. Can you see it? Now, why is it worked that way? Because of the last phrase in verse 16. I really wish they had started verse 17 with this. I wish they had uh, added a verse in here. I wish that this chapter had 21 verses. Because I think the last phrase of verse 16 would be taken more seriously. And get more notice if it was standing alone. But he's talking about a principle that makes the other things that he's just said work. He said the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. In other words, he's saying here's why it works when you pray for each other. Because the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now in the original Greek, there's one word that's translated into the English effectual fervent. You look that word up and it's the word that's translated. uh, It's the Greek word that's translated or or is the, the basis for the English word energy. It means to be active. It means to be effective. So the translators translated it, knowing that it was more than just a simple energy. The, the, uh, the strictest translation for this word from the Greek to the English would be energy. Well, that wouldn't make sense. The energetic prayer of a righteous man avails much. That doesn't get across the, 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 the thought that the Holy Ghost is trying to convey. Well, what thought is the Holy Ghost trying to convey? It's got to be heartfelt. In other words, spiritual energy, not natural energy, not emotional energy, spiritual energy. So they came up with heartfelt. But the rest of it has to do with the effectiveness of the energy. So notice it's talking about from the heart, but it's talking about effectiveness. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, there shouldn't be any question who the righteous man is that he's talking about. He's talking about the two people that had something between them whether unforgiveness on both sides or one side against the other or whatever, two people that had stepped outside of love that just cleared it up. So where the devil might try to beat you up with this verse of Scripture saying, well, if we could just find a righteous man, the righteous man he's talking about and using as, a, as an example is the person that was just out of love and cleared it up. Well, I don't know anybody that doesn't fit into that category. At least the part about being outside of love. Everybody can clear it up if they want to, if they will. It's a choice, not an ability. 
It's not that some people have the capacity or a greater capacity to forgive or walk in love than other people do. Everybody has the same starting point. Now, what you do with it as far as developing that love walk in your life is up to you. But everybody has the capacity to do so. And that's the righteous man that he's identifying. The effectual, fervent prayer, the effective prayer from the heart of a righteous man, the person that's willing to step back into love through asking forgiveness when he stepped outside, his prayer will work. But notice it's conditional. Notice it's conditional. The righteous man has to do with fellowship or has to do with relationship with God. You're made righteous by the blood of Jesus. So we could even paraphrase it this way. The effective heartfelt prayer of any child of God avails much. I like the amplified on that last couple of verse, uh, last couple of words. It says, uh, turns, uh, turns to the advantage, I believe it says. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man turns to the advantage. In other words, is great, uh, uh, well, how does this say? Let me look it up. There's something about dynamic and it's working there, and I want to make sure I get the whole thing. James 5, 16. Amplified. Confess to one another, therefore, your faults, your slips, your false steps, your offenses, your sins. And pray also for one another that you may be healed and restored to a spiritual tone of mind and heart. They're kind of weak on the healed part. The earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. That's what avails much means. Makes tremendous power available. Makes tremendous power available. Makes tremendous power available. Now let me ask you a question. How do you know you're praying effectively? The answer for most of the church world is they'll just throw a prayer up there and if it works, then it was effective. But that's kind of a hit and miss way of going about it, isn't it? And in my uh, estimation and in my experience with other Christians, it's more miss than hit. But notice you can pray effectively. Notice there is a means and a method and a way for you to pray effectively so that your prayers are answered every time. Every time. So that your prayers are answered every time. Now let's, uh, let's take a couple of minutes and talk about one of these kinds of prayer. Uh, turn with me back to, um, let's try Luke 22. The reason I want to start with this one, I know I don't have the, the whole evening for it, but that's all right. We can cover it um, in a pretty short period of time. Let's start reading in verse uh, Luke 22. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give us this account. Let's start reading in verse 39. And he came out and went as he was wont to the Mount of Olives. This is after the Last Supper with the disciples, the night that he was betrayed. And his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, we know from the other, uh, other uh, gospel accounts that it's the Garden of Gethsemane. When he was at the place, he said unto them, pray that you enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, 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 these are the words that the Holy Ghost revealed to James that he said, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, 
not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, more earnestly. Now he's starting to pray harder about this. More fervently, in other words. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he arose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And said unto them, Why sleep you? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Now both Matthew and Mark tell us about, uh, uh, give us a little bit more detail than Luke does. Or a little bit different detail than Luke does, I should say. Because Luke includes some things that they didn't. Matthew and Mark both tell us that he prayed this prayer three different times. He prayed it once, got up and went to check on the disciples, found they were asleep, woke them up, went back to pray, prayed the same prayer, said the same words Matthew and Mark both say. He said the same thing again the second time, gets up the second time from that prayer, goes back to where his disciples are, see them asleep again, wakes them up and said, can't you guys stay awake and pray with me in my greatest hour of need? Goes back and says the same exact words the third time. Third time he goes to them, finds them asleep, and it's just a few minutes after that that they're awakened by Judas and the Roman soldiers coming to betray him. Or Judas betraying him and the Roman soldiers coming to take him captive. But they tell us that he prayed the same thing three different times. Now, what did he pray? He prayed the same thing as in verse 42, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Now, this is what's called, or what we will call, the prayer of consecration or dedication to God. There are different titles, different names you could give to it, but just for the sake of description, that's what we'll call it, the prayer of consecration to God. I was in a church, or in the church here, um, oh, it's been a couple of years ago. I'm not sure exactly how long, but it's been a number of years ago. And there was a guy that came up to us. We'd already started a healing school, and he came up to me after the service um, Sunday evening. And we'd been teaching on healing, hadn't laid hands on the sick that night. And uh, so he came up after the service and he said, uh, uh, Pastor Mike, I've been watching you on TV and um, uh, I, I want you to pray for me. He told me what the condition was, what the sickness was and what the doctors had said about it. It's a real serious thing, not life threatening or, uh, you know, critical from the standpoint that he only had a short time to live or anything like that. But it was a real serious thing. And the doctors were doing everything they could to, to treat it. And it wasn't really having much effect, at least not at that point in time or yet or whatever. And, uh, and so he, uh, he said, uh, uh, I've heard you preach on healing several times. I've gotten some of your uh, sermons off the website. And uh, I want you to, to pray for me for healing. And I said, well, I said, okay. I said, um, um, I, I can do that. Sure. Be glad to. And just as I started to lay hands on him and pray, I had a real, real hesitation in my heart. I just had a stop sign that, uh, that the Holy Ghost seemed to put up on the inside of me. So I stopped and I said, I'll tell you what. The Bible says that if two or more of us agree as touching anything that we ask, then God will do it for us. All it takes is two people to agree. Now, I'll give you a little hint on this one. This is the prayer of agreement. We'll talk about that a little bit later. It's two people praying the prayer of faith together. That's what the prayer of agreement is. It's two people praying the prayer of faith together. So I just said, we'll agree. He said, all right, that'll be fine. And I said, I'll tell you what, you pray and at the end of the prayer, if I can agree with it, I'll say amen and it'll be done. He said, all right. So he started off and started off real good. Started off and said, now, Father, your word says that Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins. He took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Said some scripture. It was going really, really well. 
and then prayed for, I don't know, just two or three minutes, whatever it was. And, um, uh, and then said, now, Father, I ask you to heal me. Knowing that Jesus taught us to pray, not my will, but your will be done. Well, now I know exactly why I had that red light on the inside. Because I would have prayed, knowing all the time, that, or not knowing, that he all the time was saying, if it be your will. And he wouldn't have gotten anything. He would have blamed either me or blamed God for it. Because there would have been something wrong with somebody else. Because he is following Jesus' pattern. Now turn back with me to Matthew chapter 6. Here's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's clearly praying, not my will, but your will be done. Right? But turn back with me to Matthew chapter 6. Because Matthew chapter 6 gives us an example where Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Luke chapter 11 tells us the same thing in verses 1 and 2. Luke chapter 11 verse 1 says the disciples came to Jesus. Matthew puts it as part of the the Sermon on the Mount. But the disciples, uh, according to Luke chapter 11 in verse 1, came to Jesus and said, Master, John taught his disciples to pray. You teach us. Some of Jesus' disciples were disciples of John. John, uh, uh, John was a good example. John and James were both, the two brothers, were disciples of, uh, of John the Baptist. And so they probably had a hand in this, knowing that John the Baptist had taught his disciples to pray. So they said, along with the others, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, after this manner, pray you, or pray these words to something to that effect. However you want to translate it. He's saying, this is the way to pray to the Father. I want to read it from uh, Matthew chapter 6. Because I like the wording a little bit better. It's all the same thought, same principle. But I like the wording a little bit better here. Jesus said in verse 9, After this manner, therefore, pray you. In other words, he's saying, say this. Now, it doesn't have to be word for word, although the church has made the Lord's Prayer out of it and made a, a ritual out of saying these exact words. Jesus is saying, pray something to this effect. So in other words, the principles that he's going to give them, the points that he's going to make in teaching them how to pray is him giving instruction concerning prayer while he was here on the earth, right? Now remember where we started is that guy came to healing school and said, Lord, as you taught us to pray, not my will, but your will be done. Let's see if that's in here. Verse 9, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In other words, start your prayer by magnifying God. Not your problem. That's a good principle to follow. Now, folks, I would submit to you that this is not a New Testament prayer. Remember, Jesus said in that day, talking about the day following his resurrection, the day of the church, he said, you shall ask me nothing, but whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Right? John 16, 23. So the New Testament praying, the New Testament church type of prayer contains the name of Jesus. The Lord's Prayer doesn't have anything about his name in there. So the principles are great, but it's not a New Testament prayer. This is an Old Testament prayer, an Old Covenant prayer, because Jesus has not yet fulfilled the Old Covenant by going to the cross. This is not a New Testament manner of praying. However, the principles are good because God doesn't change. Clearly, if Jesus is teaching them this is the pattern to pray, this kind of prayer worked. Right? So you could take these principles and apply the name of Jesus to it or add the name of Jesus to it and get good results. Because God doesn't change. The only thing that's changed between then and now is, the, is Jesus' sacrifice, death, burial, and resurrection, and therefore the name of Jesus that's, that is the key to the church praying. So he said, after this manner pray, our Father, point number one, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
In other words, magnify God and how, how great and how holy he is. Not your problem. Second point, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now, some would say, well, see, it's talking about praying the will of God. Yeah, it is. It's talking about praying the will of God. But it's talking about praying the will of God to be done here just like it is in heaven. Show me anything in the Bible that says when you get to heaven, God will sometimes say no. We could spend a lot of time on this, folks. Is there any sickness in heaven? Then it would have to be the will of God, according to what Jesus is teaching us to pray. It would have to be the will of God for there to be no sickness here on the earth for his children. Now, certainly there's sickness in the earth as long as Satan is, is the God of this world. And as long as the law of sin and death is, is uh, uh, in play. But it's not in play for you. Because you've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. The law of the life of uh, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made you free from that law of sin and death. So when he says, pray this manner or pray in this principle, according to this principle, the will of God to be done in the earth, in your life for the person that's praying, just like it is in heaven. You've got to ask yourself, is the, the trouble is the trouble that I'm in the middle of now here on the earth that way in heaven? In other words, if it's financial trouble, am I going to be subject to financial trouble in heaven? Then it's got to be the will of God for you to be free from financial trouble here. Now, that's the principle that Jesus is talking about. Thy will be done in earth, even as it is in heaven. Not, Lord, if it be your will. Jesus doesn't have any question about what the will of God is in heaven, does he? Do you? You shouldn't. You know why? Because we've got a book that tells us what things are like in heaven. So anything in that book that reveals to us what things are like in heaven, you can pray with great confidence. No need to pray, Lord, if it be your will. You can pray with confidence that it be this way in the earth for you now. Now that's the problem. The problem is most Christians don't want to take the time to find out what the book says about their situation. Now, notice the next verse. Notice the next principle. Give us this day our daily bread, if it be your will. Huh? Is that what it reads? Give us this day our daily bread, Lord, but not our will. Your will be done. And the, the, the underlying assumption that the church has always operated on, or at least a good portion of the church operates on, is the idea, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, but if it's not your will, just let us starve. Is that what Jesus is saying? Is that the way it is in heaven? You're going to be hungry in heaven? No need to be hungry here then. No, Jesus, in talking about thy kingdom come, thy will be done in heaven, even in earth, even as it is in heaven, he's talking about the principle of God wants the same things for you here that he wants for you there. Therefore, give us this day our daily bread. He didn't seem to have any question about the will of God concerning that, does he? Well, then he can't be teaching us to pray, Lord, if it be your will, attached to everything that we ask for. It's impossible. Now, I know a lot of Christians don't accept that, but that's got to be the truth. If the Bible is true, then that has to be the way that it is. Next point, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, notice under the old covenant, forgiveness was based on God's forgiveness of you was based on your forgiving one another. Is that the way forgiveness works today? 
You know, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, it says that we should forgive one another even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. In other words, the New Testament means or method or manner of forgiveness is I can forgive anybody anything because God's already forgiven me everything. That's not the way it worked when Jesus was here on the earth. Forgiveness was conditional. Forgiveness was conditional on me forgiving you if I'm going to get God to forgive me. It's not the way it works. So you can see there's a difference here. But notice it doesn't say forgive us our debts even as we forgive our debtors if it be your will. Next thing it says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, unless it's your will for us to go through evil. Notice Jesus is saying with great confidence, great certainty, great assurance, that it's the will of God for you to be delivered from evil. Now, they couldn't be led by the Holy Ghost the way you can. The church is led by the Spirit of God from within. They didn't have the Spirit of God on the inside of them. How would they be led one way or another by God, whether it's in temptation or, or, or evil or whatever else it was? The Bible says God tempts no man with evil, so God is never leading or taking somebody into temptation or into evil. That's the work of the devil. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that the devil's your problem, not God. Lead us not into temptation because that's contrary to the character and the nature of God, but deliver us from evil. Why? For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. What does that mean? That means God glories in delivering you from problems and evil. Doesn't say there won't be any. Doesn't say you won't have any problems. Doesn't say there won't be any evil in here on the earth. Is that God glories in you being free from them. So what's Jesus doing in the Garden of Gethsemane? Clearly, that's not the way he taught his disciples to pray. Lord, if it be your will. Clearly. So what's he doing in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's saying very simply, Father, I'm facing the cross. I know what the cross means. It means I'm not only going to go through the physical agony of the the beatings and sufferings and so forth, but I'm going to be separated from you. I'm going to be made sin. Made sin. Not just having sin put on him. I'm going to be made sin. I'm going to die spiritually. If there is any other way to, to accomplish your plan of redemption for mankind without me having to die spiritually, let's do that. But if that's the only way, I'm committed to go all the way. That's all it means. Lord, if it be your will, is just consecrating yourself to God for whatever his plan and purpose is. Now, folks, there are some, uh, for example... Let me give you an, uh, an example here. Uh, well, let me make some comments and I'll give you the example. I know from my own, exa- my own experience that the more I grow in the things of God, the more willing I am for whatever he's got planned. Now, as a baby Christian or as an immature Christian, I didn't have that. I wanted things my way. And I wanted them right now. And when I found out the prayer of faith would get answers from God... I took the word of God and I said, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I claim this and I expected it to work instantly. And it didn't. At least not in every case. I had some instant results, but not in every case. And there were things over the years that I've held back. Saying, now, Lord, this is the way I want it. Now I'm kind of at the place where I don't have anything that I'm saying this is the way I want it. 
I've got things that are in my heart. But I don't care how it goes. Personally. I, I know Brother Hagin told a story about a guy that had run from the Lord. Uh, from the time that he was 17 years old until he was about 35. 17 or 18 years. He went to a youth retreat or a youth camp or something like that out in the woods. And they had the campfire and it was a real solemn occasion. And he felt like God started dealing with him about going to the mission field. Well, he didn't want to go to the mission field. Didn't want to have anything to do with it. So he'd stay away from the things of God. He pulled back, stopped going to church, you know, or would go every now and then or, or whatever the case is. Because he didn't want to get in that place where the Holy Ghost started dealing with him. A lot of times when uh, we've had people come to the church and uh, let us know afterwards that they're not coming back because they're tired of me preaching condemnation. Well, let me interpret that for you. They get in the presence of God and they get under conviction. It's not what I'm saying. It's what the Holy Ghost is saying to them. So what do they do? They pick up and run where there is no presence of the Holy Ghost so that they don't have to experience that conviction. But you've got to blame it on somebody. can't be your fault. And so that's how it worked. Well, that's what this guy did. Year after year after year after year after year. Finally, when he was in his mid-30s, about 35 years old, he finally surrendered himself to the Lord and said, Okay, Lord, I give up. I've tried my own way and it doesn't work. I've made a mess of my life. I'm ready to commit myself to you. I'll go to the mission field. And the Lord spoke to him just as clear as a bell. According to his testimony, he said, I don't want you to go to the mission field. And he was so so shocked that he just spoke out loud and said, well, what have you been bugging me about this for for 17 years? And the Lord said, I never told you to go to the mission field 17 years ago, like you said. I just want you to be willing to do whatever I've got for you. So he was running from nothing for 17 or 18 years. I wonder how many other people do that. I guess in one respect, it's an easy thing to do because it's hard to accept that God wants better for you than you want for you. But I've got to tell you, that's one of the greatest lessons to learn in life. There's a verse of Scripture, two verses of Scripture in Proverbs. I'm not sure what the the reference is, but they're in Proverbs chapter 30 somewhere. And it says this. It says, two things I require of thee, Lord. Give me neither riches nor poverty. Because if I get riches, then I'm liable to forget you. And if I get poverty, then uh, if I wind up in poverty, then I'm liable to steal. And that's not right either. Well, a lot of times people will see that and they'll use that as a, as a, to throw a stone against the so-called prosperity message. And the prosperity message is just that God wants to meet your needs. He wants you to have enough to provide for you and your family. And he wants you to have enough to be able to give and serve him, do whatever he has for your plan for your life. And so some people will take that and say, well, Solomon said, give me neither riches nor poverty. Folks, the richest man in the world is saying that. Do you really think he means take all my money away except for for food money? Do you really think that's what he's saying? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is I'm willing to follow you either way. I don't want to be on the top. I don't want to be on the bottom because I want to serve you. Now, I can relate to that. When we started the church in uh, January of 86, sometime during that year, it was, uh, I don't know, I'm guessing we were about six months old, maybe seven months old into the church. And, um, and the Lord spoke some things to me. We were having a prayer meeting, and uh, it, was in a, it was in a home, uh, somebody, somebody's home that was coming to the church. And, and at the point in time, we only had about 20 or 5, maybe 30 people coming to the church. And so at that moment, we were believing God to pay the, the bill, the rent, on the school that we were meeting in 
uh, three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and we had a midweek service. I think the midweek service was on Thursday night. That's what we could get from the school. And it was costing us the whopping amount of $150 a, a service. So we're running about, uh, well, I don't guess it was even that much. I remember total, the total bill was something like $1,100 per month, or right around $1,000 a month, I guess it was. And, man, that was all the money in the world. So we're believing God just to have enough money coming in in the offerings to pay the bill so that we can rent the school. Now, we're about six months into the church, like I said, six or seven months into the church. And in the prayer meeting, I'm minding my own business, just walking and praying. I've always walked and prayed. There's a real spiritual reason for that. I found I can stay awake a lot better when I walk than when I sit down. People try to attach all spiritual things to stuff. I walk to stay awake when I pray. Anyway, I'm walking around. And in the middle of walking around, God drops something right in the middle of my heart. He dropped something in my heart where our church would give away millions and millions of dollars. Well, when you're believing for $1,000 a month to pay the bill, that seems a little far-fetched. So there, while I'm in the prayer meeting, I'm, you know, nobody's looking at me. Everybody's doing their own praying and kind of stuff. I'm arguing with the Lord about that. I'm thinking, well, Lord, gee, that sounds great. And then you start getting puffed up about it and start thinking, how many millions? Because however many millions you give, that means you've got to have that many millions to start with to begin with. And he didn't say to give away everything you had. So if you're giving away $100 million, you've got to have more than 100 and you might have some left over for yourself. So you get, get, get to thinking all these thoughts and all this kind of stuff. And I've known from, the, from almost the very beginning of our church that there will come a time. We've done a lot of giving so far, but there will come a time where our church will be dealing in millions, tens and tens of millions of dollars as far as the mission field is concerned, spreading the gospel and, and so forth. I think a lot of it has to do with TV and, and uh, getting the word out that way and so forth. But I've got to tell you, I, having had this for almost 27 years, well, I guess it, right, it is right at 27 years now. Having had this, 28 years. Yeah, 28 years. Having had this in my heart for 28 years, I don't care if it happens or not. I mean, if it's the will of God, that's great. But I'm not try, trying to make it happen. I'm not trying to make it work. Now, in the beginning, man, I wanted it to work. I'm trying to figure out what button can I push and what lever can I pull and what rich people can we get in our church. And, and, and you get all kinds of goofy ideas about things. But over the years, I'm kind of at the place with, where it's, well, Lord, if that's your plan, okay, great. If it's not your plan, that's okay too. Well, Pastor Mike, wouldn't you feel like you've missed it all these years? No, I wouldn't feel like I'd missed it at all. It wouldn't be any big deal to me. I haven't done anything to try to make it happen to begin with. So that's a means or a, a, a manner of consecrating yourself to the Lord. There are things that I've got in my heart. But whether they happen or not is up to God. Now, having said that, I'm not willing at all under any circumstances for my needs or the needs of the church to not be met. Every time. Uh, let me close with this. Turn back. Did I, where did I leave you? Did I leave you in, in uh, Luke 22? Or Matthew 6. Well, I'm going to read to you from Luke 22. Here's what I've done countless times. I have no idea how many times it's been. But there have been a lot of times that I've had something in my heart like this thing I was talking to you about. There have been times, uh, no telling how many times I've talked to the Lord about that. Because I've got to make sure that I keep my heart about that, even if it is God's plan. And I believe with all my heart that it is. 
But I've got to keep my heart right about it. I've got to make sure that whatever comes in, I don't get, it doesn't stick to me. I've got to make sure that I don't change what God has for me to do just because I think there might be some rich guy out there that wants to put money into the pot. I've got to make sure that that doesn't happen. And so I'm constantly, constantly renewing my consecration and dedication to the Lord. Lord, your will be done. I couldn't care less. But that doesn't mean that I give up on praying for the needs of the church or taking hold of the things that belong to me as an individual believer for my family in, in Christ Jesus. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Notice here, every time, every time that I've come to the Lord and said, Lord, I just give up on this. I mean, I'm, if, I, if I'm taking too much care of it, if I'm starting to think about this thing too much or whatever the case is, Lord, I put this thing back over on you. This is your plan, your purpose, your doing. If you do it, that's the only way it's going to get done. I'm not going to try to make it happen. I'm willing to, to, to have a little church. I'm willing to have a big church. I'm willing to not be known. I'm willing to be famous. I couldn't care less, Lord. It's your plan, your purpose. You're the one that makes the plans. Now, every one of those times that I have uh, reconsecrated or rededicated myself to the Lord, Lord, your will to be done. The things that I know are right, here's why I know. Look at what happened when Jesus prayed. Father, verse 42 again, Luke twenty-two forty-two. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. What's the angel there for? What's the angel there for? The angel is there to give him confidence, to give him assurance that you are on the right track. This is the way for redemption to be accomplished. I'll help you. Every time, every time, without exception, every time I've been praying and recommitting myself or rededicating myself and, and God, to God's plan for the church and ministry, I'm not talking about personally. I'm, it's a different thing for, for God's plan for your life and, and so forth. But everything that I know of that God has put in my heart for the church, when I recommit myself to him, I come out of that recommitment with a confidence, a greater confidence. This is what God put in my heart. This is what God has planned. This is the thing to stand in faith for. You'll never, in my opinion, in my experience, you will never, I have never come out of committing myself really truly from my heart. Now, God knows if you're running a game on him. God knows if you're saying, Lord, I'm willing, thinking I'm going to manipulate you into doing the thing I really want. He knows your heart. But I have never come out of really recommitting myself and dedicating myself to whatever God's plan is for me, for the church, or whatever the case is, without coming out of that prayer with a greater confidence of what his will is. Never. Now, I don't have the angel come and strengthen me, but I've got the Holy Ghost that strengthens me. And that's the way that kind of prayer works. It's not the way Jesus taught us to pray, but it is the way that Jesus set an example for us to pray when you're facing a situation that's going to be kind of tough. One of the greatest, 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 greatest things you can ever do is be willing to do whatever God says. My plan is to stay with the church forever, but I'm willing to leave if he wants me to. Don't want to leave. Done too much work to, to get it here. Feel like we're just getting the foundation laid so we can jump off of it. Really take off. But if God tells me to go, I'll go. If he tells me to start over, I'll start over. Doesn't matter to me. But if I pray that kind of prayer, if I tell the Lord that, Lord, I'm willing to do whatever, every time I come away with a confidence, a knowing 
an assurance. This is the direction that God has for you. Stay in faith about this. Keep believing for the things that he's put in my heart to do. And that's how the prayer of consecration works. It's not one of these catch-all phrases, Lord, if it be your will. This is the only prayer you can pray without knowing for certain what the will of God is when you pray it. But as I said, in my experience and in my opinion, you judge it for yourself, you'll come out of that prayer knowing God's will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have to pray. We thank you for the privilege that we have to to know that you hear and answer our prayer. Lord, we commit ourselves to you. Your will be done in our lives, not ours. We know that that doesn't mean your will whether or not we should be healed. We know that doesn't mean whether or not it's your will to meet our needs. We know that doesn't mean whether or not it's your will to see us through in our situations. We know that's not what this is talking about. But we are committed, Father, whether it's to go or to stay, to turn to the right or turn to the left. Whatever your plan and purpose is for our lives, we commit ourselves to go your way and to follow you. And we thank you, Father, for the confidence of the Holy Ghost, the leading of God to show us what your will is for our individual lives so that we can trust you to bring it to pass. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Folks, stick around for this this series. We're going to talk about some really neat stuff. Any of you have any questions about Jacob in the Old Testament wrestling with the angel and throwing his hip out of joint and all that kind of stuff? We're going to talk about those things. We're going to cover some things that you might not normally hear or expect to hear. But we're going to cover some things and it's going to make you a whiz at prayer. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being with us.